Welcome to the December 23rd, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. First on today's podcast, we'll review a research article demonstrating that some platelet-derived extracellular vesicles harbor proteosomes that can process and present antigens via MHC class I molecules. Next, we'll review results of a phase I study of a fibril-reactive monoclonal antibody that was well-tolerated and led to rapid sustained organ responses in patients with AL amyloidosis. We'll close with a research article suggesting that the pore-forming protein gastermin D, which plays a crucial role in the release of neutrophil extracellular traps, is a promising drug target in sepsis. The first article is entitled, Platelet Extracellular Vesicles Contain an Active Proteasome Involved in Protein Processing for Antigen Presentation via MHC1 Molecules. And the first author is Jean-Vivre Marcou of Centre Hospitalier, Universitaire du Québec, Université Laval, in Quebec City, Canada. In this research article, Marcou and co-authors posit that platelet extracellular vesicles, or EVs, may contribute to adaptive immunity via cross-presentation of antigens to CD8-positive T-cells in lymphoid organs. In this way, the platelet EVs may extend the immune function of platelets and megakaryocytes beyond the confines of the blood. While best known for their role in hemostasis, platelets also play an important role in immunity. Platelets bear receptors that allow recruitment of immune cells and feature an array of immune and inflammatory molecules that are stored in granules or cytoplasm and may be synthesized after platelet activation. Of note, both platelets and megakaryocytes contain functional proteasomes that hydrolyze proteins into smaller peptides, allowing for peptide loading onto platelet MHC class I molecules, which may then be presented as antigens to CD8-positive T-cells. Extracellular vesicles of platelets are abundant and heterogeneous in terms of their surface molecules and content. The small size of platelet EVs allows them to cross tissue barriers and enter synovial fluid, lymphoid tissues, and bone marrow. This contrasts with platelets themselves, which are restricted to blood circulation. As such, platelet EVs have the potential to transport molecules related to adaptive immunity to lymphoid organs. However, it has been unclear whether platelet EVs have the ability to process and present peptide antigens. In the present study, Marcou and co-investigators used molecular and functional assays to demonstrate that platelet EVs contain functional proteasomes, along with MHC class I molecules and lymphocyte co-stimulatory surface molecules. In the blood of healthy individuals, the researchers found that 2.6% of total platelet EVs, or roughly 2 million platelet EVs per milliliter of blood, contain proteasomes. Stimulation of human and mouse platelets with immune complexes significantly increased the levels of proteasome-containing platelet EVs. Further, Marcou and co-authors reported that proteasome-containing platelet EVs were able to reach lymphoid organs and circulate through the lymphatic system in mice. 
When murine platelet EVs were transfused into mice, they were rapidly cleared from the circulation, becoming undetectable in blood after 15 minutes, suggesting a rapid uptake into surrounding tissues. The murine platelet EVs were then readily detected in lymphoid tissues, including the spleen and lymph nodes, the bone marrow, and to a lesser extent, the liver and lungs. In lymph from mice, about 11% of platelet EVs expressed MHC class 1 molecules, and about 12% contained an active proteasome. 1.6% of these lymph platelet EVs had both MHC class 1 molecules and proteasomes. Investigators pointed out that this was a substantial number, given that there are about 2.5 times 10 to the 7 platelet EVs per milliliter of lymph. A key finding in the research article is that the platelet EV proteasome was functional and could process exogenous ovalbumin and load antigenic peptides onto MHC class 1 molecules. Importantly, these platelet EVs could then activate ovalbumin-specific T-cells to proliferate. In an accompanying commentary, Karina Yazdan-Bakish of New York Blood Center said that the research by Marcou and colleagues raised the exciting possibility that platelet EVs may actively participate in adaptive immunity. The findings have implications for a number of conditions that are caused by or involve platelet activation, Yazdan-Bakish said adding that platelet EVs may inadvertently contribute to pathologic disorders, including autoimmune diseases. Conversely, the findings suggest that platelet EVs may be useful in the development of therapeutics that aim to induce antitumor or antiviral immunity. Further studies are needed to elucidate the potential protective and pathologic roles of platelet EVs related to immunity and autoimmunity, Yazdan Bakish wrote in the commentary. Nevertheless, she said, the findings demonstrate that platelet EVs can now be added alongside platelets and megakaryocytes to the list of non-professional antigen-presenting cells with potential for cross-presentation of antigens. Next, let's turn to an article entitled Phase 1AB Study of Monoclonal Antibody CAEL-101 or 11-1F4, in patients with AL amyloidosis. The first author is Camille Vanessa Edwards of Columbia University Medical Center in New York City. In this study by Edwards and co-authors, this monoclonal antibody was well-tolerated and led to rapid, sustained organ responses in amyloidosis patients who had persistent organ dysfunction despite previous chemotherapy. Systemic light-chain amyloidosis or AL amyloidosis, remains an incurable hematologic malignancy associated with organ damage and early mortality. AL amyloidosis is usually caused by clonal plasma cells producing unstable immunoglobulin light chains that misfold, aggregate, and form deposits. Cardiac involvement, which is common, impacting as many as 80% of patients, is the most significant negative prognostic factor for survival. Treatment of AL amyloidosis is usually aimed at eradicating monoclonal plasma cells. This reduces the production of light chains, which can allow for regression of amyloid deposits and may restore organ function. Autologous stem cell transplantation can lead to deep, durable responses and long survival times, but the majority of patients are ineligible 
due to organ dysfunction and poor functional status. Improved chemotherapy and immunotherapy strategies has led to significant improvements in survival in recent years. Today, daratumumab with cyclophosphamide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone is standard of care. More than half of patients have a complete hematologic response with this regimen, while substantial proportions experience cardiac and renal responses. However, early mortality rates in AL amyloidosis are still relatively high, largely due to patients with advanced cardiac disease who have sustained and sometimes progressive amyloid deposition in vital organs, combined with treatment-related toxicities. To date, there are no approved treatments that would directly eradicate the amyloid deposits that underlie persistent organ dysfunction. Therapies that target and rapidly dissolve amyloid deposits could help patients with AL amyloidosis achieve meaningful organ responses, thereby improving survival. Two anti-amyloid antibodies have previously been tested with initial promising results. However, phase two and three trials of these agents were stopped due to futility or an unfavorable benefit-to-risk ratio. In the present research article, Edwards and co-authors describe a Phase 1-AB study of the monoclonal antibody CAEL-101 in patients with AL amyloidosis. CAEL-101 is a chimeric form of the murine monoclonal antibody 11-1-F4, which binds to a conformational neoepitope in misfolded immunoglobulin light chains. Binding of this antibody to amyloid fibrils promotes phagocytic destruction and thereby clearance of amyloid deposits, sparing free light chains in circulation from destruction, according to the authors. In vivo, both the murine and chimeric forms of the monoclonal antibody induced AL amyloid resolution in mice with no evidence of toxicity. The open-label dose escalation phase 1-AB study of CAEL-101 included 27 patients with symptomatic AL amyloidosis who had received prior systemic therapy. All patients had an Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group performance status of 3 or less. Patients were excluded if they had seriously diminished cardiac, renal, or hepatic function, uncontrolled infection, or significant comorbidities. In the Phase 1A portion of the study, patients received a single intravenous infusion of CAEL-101 at doses ranging from 0.5 to 500 mg per meter squared. In the Phase 1B portion, patients received four weekly infusions in a range of doses. The median age of participants was 66 years, about 70% were male, and about 56% had the lambda isotype. Approximately 59% had cardiac involvement, and 48% had renal involvement. The median time since exposure to chemotherapy was 2.6 months in the Phase 1A portion of the study and 7.4 months in Phase 1B. 24 patients were evaluable for organ response. Of these, 15 patients had a therapeutic response to CAEL-101 as shown by serum biomarkers or imaging. The median time to response was three weeks. Among patients with cardiac impairment, about two-thirds, or 8 out of 12, experienced organ response, while the remainder had stable disease. In the Phase 1b portion, there was a statistically significant decrease in serum biomarkers and a significant improvement in global longitudinal strain, 
a measure of left ventricular systolic function that has independently predicted survival in several AL amyloidosis studies. Among 10 patients with renal impairment, two demonstrated organ response, while six had stable disease. The remaining two patients met criteria for renal disease progression due to decreases in estimated glomerular filtration rate. Clinical improvements were also noted among several patients with gastrointestinal, soft tissue, and liver involvement. No dose-limiting toxicities were observed in either phase of the study, and the maximum tolerated dose was not reached. The most common treatment-related adverse events were mostly grade 1 or 2. In phase 1a, adverse events included nausea, diarrhea, rash, pruritus, and hyperuricemia. In phase 1b, the most common were diarrhea, rash, and elevated liver enzymes. Pharmacokinetics were also reported. The terminal half-life of the monoclonal antibody in serum after multiple doses was about 10 to 16 days. In a related commentary published in Blood, Giampaolo Merlini and Giovanni Palladini of the University of Pavia in Italy said these findings open new therapeutic opportunities and create new challenges. The availability of passive anti-amyloid immunotherapy would mean that both ends of the amyloid cascade could be targeted, according to the commentary authors. In that two-hit strategy, anti-clone immunochemotherapy would aim to extinguish the production of amyloid light chains, while the passive immunotherapy could help restore tissue architecture and reduce toxicity mediated by amyloid fibrils. The impact of CAEL-101 could be especially relevant to patients with very advanced cardiac involvement, according to the commentary authors, who said this unmet need is the most challenging in AL amyloidosis management today. Altogether, the Phase 1-AB study results from Edwards and colleagues demonstrate that the CAEL-101 monoclonal antibody has acceptable safety and provides evidence of clinical activity in patients with AL amyloidosis. Future studies will explore the clinical activity of CAEL-101 at doses higher than what was tested in this study. Multiple trials are underway, including randomized placebo-controlled studies enrolling patients with advanced and very advanced cardiac involvement. The final article is entitled, Gasdermin D Inhibition Prevents Multiple Organ Dysfunction During Sepsis by Blocking Net Formation. The first author is Camila Mireles Silva of the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil. In this article, Silva and co-authors describe a series of investigations that point toward a potential novel use of disulfiram as a treatment for sepsis. It's clear that the most severe outcome of sepsis is multiple organ dysfunction, which is closely linked with mortality. Although many mechanisms are involved in the development of multiple organ dysfunction, one key player is the excessive production of neutrophil extracellular traps, or NETs. Neutrophils release NETs as part of their attack on pathogens. However, beyond this host protective role, there is evidence that NETs may contribute to tissue injury in sepsis and in other inflammatory conditions. Based on those observations, it's possible that inhibiting netosis might effectively prevent net-based organ injury in patients with sepsis. Gasdermin D is a poor-forming protein that is used by neutrophils to release nets in the setting of severe inflammation, such as sepsis. 
The present study by Silva and colleagues sets out to determine if inhibition of gas dermin D in the setting of sepsis can reduce release of nets by neutrophils and whether this is beneficial or harmful. Using an experimental model of sepsis in mice, they found that genetic deletion of gas dermin D prevented net release, reduced organ dysfunction, and improved survival as compared to the robust release of nets in wild-type mice. Given these positive findings in mice lacking gas dermin D, the authors next sought to determine if inhibition of gas dermin D with a drug was also effective. Interestingly, it is known that gas dermin D can be inhibited by disulfiram, a well-known drug that also inhibits aldehyde dehydrogenase and has been used to treat alcoholism. The authors then tested disulfiram in two different models of sepsis, including sequel puncture and administration of systemic endotoxin. Importantly, the pharmacologic inhibition of gas dermin D with disulfiram prevented net release and reduced organ dysfunction, thereby improving clinical outcomes. Treatment also reduced organ injury markers, edema and vascular congestion, levels of systemic inflammatory cytokines, as well as increasing survival rates. In a blood commentary on this research article, authors said that these findings demonstrate the potential utility of disulfiram as an oral drug that could inhibit net formation by inhibiting the activity of gas dermin D. Maxim Kliminiku and Julius Kokawa of University Hospital Tübingen in Germany said in the commentary that if these laboratory findings are confirmed in clinical trials, then disulfiram could provide much-needed help in preventing deleterious outcomes in patients with sepsis. They said more research is also needed to elucidate the mechanism of gas dermin D action in sepsis and the inhibition of gas dermin D by disulfiram. Furthermore, it may be exciting to learn whether disulfiram could mitigate the course of COVID-19 disease. Recently, it was demonstrated that excessive net formation is an adverse prognostic factor for patients with SARS-CoV-2 infection and is associated with severe organ dysfunction in COVID-19 disease. Taken together, findings of the study by Silva and colleagues suggest that gas dermin D is active in neutrophils obtained from septic mice and humans. Furthermore, gas dermin D appears to play a key role in net release and organ dysfunction during sepsis. By inhibiting gas dermin D with inhibitors such as disulfiram, clinical outcomes in patients with sepsis might be improved. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.